How much food do you throw away every week? And do you have to? That's today's big question. And my guest is Matt Rogers. Matt is a former Apple iPod and iPhone engineer, the co-founder of Nest Thermostats, founder of Insight.org, and former chairman of Carbon 180. He is now the co-founder and CEO of Mill. What's Mill? Well, it's a membership to a food-shrinking, de-stinking kitchen bin. And it just may be one of the most important levers you and I can take to fight food waste and climate change. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In our weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human who's working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Along the way, we'll discover tips, strategies, and stories you can use to get involved. This is how we give a shit. As a longtime fan of Matt's work, an early evangelizer of the products he's worked on and invented, and as someone who tries and struggles with compost, I've got three kids, I couldn't have been more excited and frankly relieved to see Matt and his co-founder, Harry Tenenbaum, bring their very unique backgrounds and skills to such an enormous and complex, but intimate, everyday problem. I'm a huge fan of Matt's multidisciplinary work to drive systems change across tech and nonprofits and politics, but Mill may be his most direct take on it yet. Matt Rogers, welcome to the show. Thank you for putting up with all of our crazy links and getting all set up. Happy to be here. Matt, I like to start with, it's a little bit of a ridiculous question. It kind of sets the tone for the whole fiasco, but I've asked it over 150 times. So you might cackle at it, but then we usually get something provocative, if not uh, inspiring out of it. And I like to ask, uh, Matt, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And again, I encourage you to be bold and honest. That is a really good one. Oh, man. I think I've got a particular set of skills when it comes to building great products. And... It's one of the things that I reflect on my life and my career. Like, there are only so many people who have worked on the best products of humanity. And to take those skills and apply them for good, it's kind of a Venn diagram of a very small bubble. It's why I work on climate change. Can you apply skills learned in the temple of Apple yeah. to day-to-day -day consumer problems that affect humanity? And yeah, that's why I spend all my days on what I've done most of my adult life. And yeah, got, got to keep doing it. I love it, man. Well, listen, we have covered home electrification quite a lot lately with all the IRA money and all the pieces and all the new stuff. And obviously, you're one of the godfathers of, of reinventing things that are not so sexy, but which turns out are literally a part of our day lives and uh, drive everyone crazy until that comes around. So, so we'll get to that. But some statistics, we have talked about uh, food waste in a variety of different capacities over time. But just to set the context for anyone who's who's sort of new to this. And I know you know all this shit, but to set the table as you were here, globally, something like um, a third of our available arable land is used to create food for livestock. In the US, about a third of food grown for humans never actually makes it to someone's stomach. The carbon footprint of US food waste is greater than that of the airline industry. Food takes more space in landfills than just about anything else. Globally, wasted food accounts for about 8%, I think, of greenhouse gas emissions. There's some new research on that. There's a new journal article that was published in Nature just a couple of weeks ago. It puts food waste and loss at like nine gigatons. Nine gigatons. It's obscene. That's like it's so much. 15, 18% of emissions. Yeah. Unbelievable. 
it's crazy. Good news is we're not getting better at this. So your, your product couldn't have better timing. Talk about product market fit. The point is, we've got all this food. We waste a lot of it. We make way more than enough food for everybody. And yet somehow tens of millions of people tend to go hungry in this country over and over again. Again, we've had some really cool conversations about food waste in the past year with uh, Rick Namias, who runs Food Forward in Los Angeles. They attack it from one area with James Rogers, I assume no relation over at Appeal, uh, who do truly when he explained what he did to us. And this was a couple of years ago. I was like, I don't understand any of it, but it's incredible. It's all awesome. And there's so much waste up and down the supply chain. Why have you basically reinvented the trash can? Like, Why do you keep coming back to consumer behavior change, which of all that shit might be the hardest one? Yeah. So like rewinding the clock back a little bit as to like why I jumped into this problem is actually it's because of exactly what you said. This is one of the largest problems that humanity and the planet faces. It's kind of embarrassing. Like we have some really large challenges that require like astronomical scientific breakthrough. Sure. Like grand challenges of humanity kind of breakthrough. How to do nuclear fusion, at, you know, like atmospheric uh, 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 levels and like- The people are like, look, how do we make steel like with clean energy? That's actually gonna be really hard. Exactly. Or like, yeah, how to remove CO2 from the air without sure. using too much energy to do it. Things that are really, really hard. And like this is like, let's call it like one of the grand challenges of humanity, but it's kind of dumb. Preventing food from going in the trash. It's like when you, when you put it that way, like this is what we have to do. Like surely we can do this. Like, can't we just call everybody up and say, hey, like, you know, FYI, we got to stop putting food in the trash. It's really important. And like, we could surely do that. When you get down to it, even in like the most well-meaning households, and like, like, I'll raise my hand on this one. Swathi and I live in a very climate forward household. Sure. I mean, like, we, tr we tried to do the right thing with food waste. Yeah. And we had one of those countertop top pails. Yeah. And when the fruit flies moved in in 2020, uh, that was it. There were a few like, rougher memories my children have than like dad's fight against the fruit flies for like six months in 2021. It's, it's off. They don't, they never leave. They never leave. And like, you buy this like yellow sticky paper and you kind of hang it all over the house and yeah, like they stick to it, but like, there's always more fruit flies. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of like out of that frustration. They're like, Oh, like surely like we could build a better system and stepping back a little bit, like in part of what, Harry, my partner and I had to go through is acknowledging like that food waste will exist. Sure. Like even if we perfectly engineer refrigeration and your point about appeal, like making fruits and vegetables last a really long time, food waste is inevitable. And like banana peels, for example, we're not going to eat banana peels. And, you know, I've got two little kids and embarrassingly half of what we feed them ends up on the floor. The dogs can eat some of it, but not all of it. So like figuring out a system where we can make that part really easy and not gross so that yeah effectively we're going to call up every household on the planet and saying hey like don't need to throw your food in the trash anymore we've got a new way it makes so much sense right again the, the half the reason i do this work most of the reason is people just going like what can i do and it sounds insane to say to them please stop throwing all your food in the trash like just just eat it or just keep eating it the exp expiration okay. dates whole other podcast like most of them are real like, ignore it. Ugly fruit? Great. Still good. Cut off the beast. It's, it's annoying. Delicious. Cook it. Right. 
But this is when people's eyes glaze over because they're like, one, that's super annoying because like you said, it's gross. Food waste is actually gets gross. Two, they're like, that can't be the thing of all the things that's causing the problems. I'm like, no, it is. It's a big fucking part of it. And it's 100% on us. Yeah, and this is the other one that I often hear, especially since Mill launched a few months ago, is, oh, like food waste, that must be a grocery store or restaurant problem. And they're frankly in the business of not wasting food. They run razor thin margins. Like they're very well incentivized to not waste food. And looking at US data, about half of food waste and loss is us at home. It really is like a, unfortunately, a consumer problem because again, like today, we don't really have another option. It's interesting, right? Because again, the supply chain needs a lot of work. We have a lot of, there's a lot of broken pieces along the way Yeah. in the sense of like control what you can control, but also having context and empathy for these things. Like you said, grocery stores, yes, on the one hand, we have incentivized them to sell the most beautiful produce, but they're trying not to waste any of this. Restaurants never invest in a restaurant. They're great. But if you've ever worked in one and you've like taken a plate back and there's, you have to tell the chef someone won't eat it, look at the disappointment in their eyes because they know like mm. that is wasted food. And the margins, like you said, are non-existent. But when you or I throw some moldy Dave's bread in the trash, right? Because we were gone for a week or, or we just ignored it and the kids or the kids were picky and didn't want to eat, eat it that week, but they ate it the week before. We don't do that math. And I want to talk a little bit about mill from that perspective, because it's not cheap necessarily, but at the same time, and this is a half of my job is talking to people about what they're exposed to and risk and the real costs and how we haven't paid them. You pay for your trash one way or another. And whether you pay for it every month or it's part of your rent or it's on your property taxes, I think the latest data I saw is in the U.S., we spend about $200 billion a year managing waste, like $200 billion. That's like military level budget. Right, but we throw stuff away. But we're still not paying the cost of the diesel trucks and the landfill and all that shit. So the point is, like, yeah. you and I don't have a little reader. Like a restaurant knows, like, every piece of fish that you throw in the trash is like a piece that we wasted that we paid for. We don't really do that because we're trying to feed the children something they'll eat. How did you get to reinventing the trash can, to mill, to kind of bypassing compost almost, to all this, and then deciding, hey, this is going to be the business model for it? Talk us kind of through how you got there. So, so again, start, it started with how can we make a better experience at home? Yeah. And like going to our own personal experience, trying to do the right thing with food waste and trying to compost. If you could solve the fruit fly problem, the rat problem, the smell problem, uh, actually the rest becomes a lot easier. Yeah. And we had spoken in the early days of the company to a lot of experts. Uh, and this was a cool thing about starting a company in the pandemic in 2020. It's like everyone's around. Everyone's around. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> We would call like professors at UW who are experts in this. And like, yeah, everyone answered their phone. Like, oh yeah, I'm available. You know, we got a lot of really good input as we're starting. And what we learned is even in cities that are doing everything right, that have green bin program that the city provides, one participation rates were really low, really quite low. And if you look at actually in the trash, you'd still find most of the, of the food in the trash stream. And if you look at what comes out of their compost stream, it's also full of contamination. Sure. Like if you've ever bought a truck full of compost to, for, for, your, for your garden, you'd find plastic everywhere. Like the more we looked at it, it's a, this is a consumer behavior problem. It felt a lot like what we used to do at Nest. Like, can you make a beautiful experience that's easy and just awesome, just a better experience? We're like, fun. we know how to do that. And that's kind of how we built the early days of the company. It was like, 
let's build the best freaking trash can that's ever existed that could take food waste and make it not gross. And that's how we started. And as we were accomplishing that in our own development, we realized, oh, the stuff we're making is super valuable. By, by drying out food, by making it not gross, we're effective, like, like the appeal story. We're making food that's shelf-stable and lasts a long time. If, if you're making uh, smallified food that's shelf-stable, what stuff can you do with food? You could feed it to somebody. Did you aim for sort of better compost at one point and then sort of pivot to this mechanism? Or to be clear, folks, like it isn't that at all. And we're going to get into all the whole thing you're doing, but there's actually yeah. a pretty clear delineation and it's not something that's really been attempted. So I'm just curious, like when it went that way. So, so we looked at all sorts of technologies and techniques to make food not gross. Right. That was kind of like our, from like a product manager perspective. Sure. Like that, those were our key goals. Like, can we make it not gross? And the fastest path to making things not gross is you take the water out. Uh, when you take the water out, all those bacterial processes stop. Like digestion doesn't happen when things are dry. Uh, and like if you build, I think like the like analogies of the world, I always think about analogies. Brewing beer, mm-hmm. right? Like when you add the water to the mix, that's when the fermentation happens. Sure. When it's dry, like the yeast are dormant. And the same is true with our, with our food. If it's dry, those fungi, those bacteria don't do anything. They're all dormant. And when it's wet, that's when the gloopiness happens. That's when the VOCs get released. Uh, when it's dry, it's no big deal. So as we were starting the company, we looked at all sorts of different techniques to make food not gross. And this was the absolute fastest path. Like you could dry food in a couple hours. That's the fastest path to make it not gross at home. And once you've made it dry, like what are the great things you could do with it? Uh, and that's what led us to this path of like, oh, can we make, a, make feed for animals? Because I, I imagine that realization point and, and again, I want to talk about that now, but it's a little like careful because once you pull this string, it's there's a whole fucking sweater on the other end, which is like, that's right. You guys have opened yourself up to an, like a lot of logistics. It's not just like hey, make food for animals and then ask people to put in the right bin because it's clear we don't do that. Right. We don't there's no self-serve like we don't do that. <laughs> like so now you're like, shit, now I got to solve that, too. What was that moment when you're like, all right, well, I guess we're, we're going down this road. We got to do all the rest of that because the beauty of a thermostat is you turn it and you're like, my job's done here. Right. And you nailed it. This is exactly our thought process. So in the early days of mill, late 2020, early 2021, that was our, our hypothesis. Like, oh, like we could drive this stuff out and you could put it in your green bin at home. Sure. Or you could use it in your garden and you can make compost for your plants. And then we did a lot more research. We're like, oh, only 5% of U.S. homes have a green bin program. Yeah. Well, that's not going to work. Yeah. And frankly, most people don't have the space and time to make compost for a garden and let alone all the urban centers that exist around the country. So, yeah, as you start unraveling the sweater, like, oh, so we got to come collect this stuff. Right. We can't leave it to chance for it to end up in the landfill. So, so let's come collect it. And then once you come collect it, what are you going to do with it? How does it work? Yes. Yeah, so we do the full end to end. Uh, we make the bin for your kitchen that makes it not gross. We come and collect it from your doorstep with a partnership with the U.S. Postal Service. We don't actually have to come drive our own trucks to get it. There are trucks that come to your house every day anyway. So weird. Yeah, right? I mean, that's, by the way, that's literally the Netflix DVD model. They were just like, you already get the mail. You already get the mail. Like, no, no, nobody can come drop it off. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. And the U.S. Postal Service is one of the most efficient 
logistics networks in the country. Sure. They go everywhere every day. So let's get it back to us so that we can process it and get it to farms to feed animals, namely chickens to start with. We do the entire full loop. And to your point, like we end up unraveling the whole sweater because we realize each step of this chain doesn't exist today, that we'd have to do it all ourselves to start with. I imagine you in full faith with, with, because I know, you know, the scope of your uh, involvement in trying to build a better planet through companies and philanthropy and all these different things. I imagine there was no version for you and your co-founder of like, let's just do the trash can and they'll figure out the rest. Like, I don't think you could have left it at that, right? I wish we could have. Right. It would have been a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> right. It would have been a lot easier. It would have been a lot easier for us to say, hey, like, let's just build a better bin. That would yeah. be awesome. But like, that would leave too much up to chance. And I think about like a household like ours that lives in an urban center, a very well-meaning household, but what are we going to do with hundreds of pounds of dried food? Got to have someone to come pick it up and take it off our hands and do something great with it. So we're doing the whole end to end. And I mean, like once we realize that we are going to build the whole end to end, like all of a sudden the scope of the company got a lot bigger. So I think one of the things that people will love about this, and again, I understand the in initial, and this is where we've just got to help people understand the greater context of like what our actions cost, like both directly and indirectly, which we put our head in the sand about. And now here we are, uh, is... I understand the initial looking at something like this, or for example, a Lumi, which me and my, my wife and my kids and I have problem with, with the Lumi is it's great. And then it actually, the resulting matter still tastes like food. So your dogs go eat it, which is super annoying. Anyways, the point is you have kind of almost invented and are building the distribution for a new sort of version of one of these circular economies, right? Which it's easy to say the circular economy, but as you know, from, from e-waste to whatever, there's a thousand different versions of these things. So why chicken feed? Why does this really matter to the greater sort of fight? And why specifically, how did you get to like, oh, we can heat this shit up and we can dry it out. Why did you go that way? Yeah. So think about like the circular economy, you're building loops. And when you look at loops, you want to make the tightest loop you can. And think like Bill McDonough's book, Cradle Old Cradle. As a, yeah. as a really good kind of reference point for like people in their mind. The tighter the loop you make, the less loss there is along the loop. For every step along the way, thermodynamics plays in, into effect and you have loss. Sure. Really getting yeah. kind of in, in, in the weeds. So the tighter the loop, the less loss. And you could take food and feed it to microbes to then feed the soil, to grow plants, to then feed animals, to feed humans. That's kind of the best loop that we have today as a society. Sure. That's a good loop. That's yeah. much better than landfill to methane in the atmosphere, which is poison. But we thought about like, what is the tightest loop we could do? You take the food that we don't eat, feed it directly to somebody else. And ideally you could feed it to a person. Uh, but like, I don't think that's probably a good idea with the things that we don't eat in our, in our kitchen. Cans, packaged goods, please donate to a food bank. But yes. like the banana peels and apple cores, the best thing to do with those we need to feed it to somebody else. Sure. In that case, chicken, because we have, I, I hate to say it, like unlimited chickens on the planet. The actual number might as well be unlimited. It's obscene. Eight billion chickens in the US is like mind boggling number. This is already like mind blowing stats. Like if we collect all of the food waste for the entire country, mm -hmm. we would be like a single digit percentage of the chicken feed market. I often get asked this, especially like by uh, the investment community of like, oh, like one, one day, like, you must, you know, you're going to satisfy the whole chicken feed market. And like, what's that going to do? Like, no, 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 you don't understand yeah. how many chickens there are out there. 
we will never satisfy the chicken feed market. So you know, like the, the thermodynamics of that, we dry the food and we don't need to like process it further. And basically we filter it and we pasteurize it and that's what gets fed to the chickens. It gets mixed in with their normal diet with the corn and the soy and the wheats of the world. But uh, yeah, like we don't need to further process it. It keeps all those nutrients. We don't need to transform it further. Well, I mean, we've been drying food for astronauts for, for 75 years, right? I mean, it, it retains its nutritional value. We know that. Um, That's right. The ice cream, it's so great. So again, on the pulling the sweater thing, you're not just now going, okay, now we got to work with U.S. Postal Service to, to, to pick this stuff up and we got to give you the boxes and, and the subscriptions. We can give you the boxes. Now we're going to make it into chicken feed. That's great. At some point, one of you two has to open the Google Doc and go, talk to factory farms about chicken feed which is a bullet point that is much more involved than it seems like. So tell me about that part of it. Because again, each, each step along the way, you're just like, oh, okay, here we go. This is the sweater has got, got a lot of threads. So to start with, we're going to partner with small to mid-sized family farms that think about animal welfare and have free range birds. Yeah. Our first partner being up in the Pacific Northwest where our first feed processing facility is. And Again, like there are a lot of chickens out there. Even like a small to mid-sized farm has millions of chickens. We're a ways away from getting to like the Purdue's and Tyson's of the world. Yeah. But at some point, like at scale, scale, like, yeah, yeah like we want, we want to be feeding all of the chickens and that's how we make a difference on climate. And for a chicken producer, for a poultry farm, I think 60% of their emissions is the feed they feed the birds. It's a little bit different than like a, a, a cattle producer where yeah, like sure. the, the burps are a majority of the emissions. For a poultry farmer, the feed is the source of emissions. So by mixing in our food grounds and by you know, mitigating all those methane emissions that would have happened, actually like we're effectively making a carbon neutral feed for a poultry manufacturer. And is that their incentive or is there a compensation coming this way? Do they get paid to take your feed? Do they pay you to take their feed? Because we don't have anywhere near standardized regulations on methane emissions from farms and shit like that because we can't get our act together. So I would think they're a little forward looking on that part. I mean, please do it by all means. But the point is no one's under the gun yet. Yes. So multi-pronged motivation and uh, again, to kind of company philosophy. You want people to do the right thing, but like we don't rely on like people's like philanthropic and humanitarian instincts to drive this change. It also has to be like in their best interest. So we're going to make a nutritious feed ingredient that is full of protein and fat. It's the good stuff. And price it very competitively versus the corn and soy and wheats of the world. And yes, like you can meet your ESG goals in the company by buying this feed, but that's not the sole reason why you're doing it. It's also really nutritious. It's super interesting because I feel like in all the research, and again, like, like you said, best case scenario, you take everybody's trash. It's, it's six, seven, eight percent of total chicken feed. So I understand why no one's focusing on it, but six, seven, eight percent of an ocean of chickens is a lot of fucking feed and chickens. So yeah. I do wish there were more focus on this idea of the trash can is almost like a backwards way of making better chicken feed for the country and for the world. Because, for instance, looking at plant burgers and stuff like that, or the thermostat, like you said, there's a very small segment of people and having done this for a while now that are going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Everyone else, like, it's got to be a better burger. It's got to be literally a better thermostat, which Nest was. It was great, Megan. Eco B and all this shit. It's got to be better chicken feed, and it's got to be a little more reasonably cost, but that is the thing that's going to drive a huge impact, right? Exactly. This is our entire philosophy. If we can make a better product 
better for you at home? Who likes stinky trash? No one wakes up saying, I, I love stinky trash. Yeah. I, I love those bags that rip and drip and leave a mess I, on my floor. Literally, and I take it what out. is dripping? What is that? Like, no one needs to make it stop. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like no one likes that. So we can make a better experience at home, but we also can make a better feed product for farmers. And we effectively can connect that, those dots in that loop. That's what the company is all about. If we're able to collect food waste from Americans and eventually globally to, to feed animals, and eliminate methane emissions from landfill, that, that itself is the airline industry. Like sure. a, a methane emissions from landfill is like two to 3% of global emissions. Huge, and methane's a nightmare. It gets up there and instantly things go that way with the heat. That's right. So again, it's funny, like I've always been such a nerd about this. I was one of the first people with Nest and evangelizing it left and right and, and all this different stuff. And then you walk around the house and you're like, what other shit do we hate in our house that these guys could do? And then you did the smoke alarms, right? Of course, the trash can makes so much sense, right? Yeah. And of course, it's an entire consumer problem that we have self-created and keep inducing. But at the same time, with all the other stuff you have done over the years, ignoring the fact, the very convenient fact, we're stuck at home with our trash, right? With all the other places you have invested in your work with Insight and things like this, you must have been and continue to be exposed to many, many, many good ideas where you could apply your very valuable time and ingenuity and resources because this isn't a one-year gig. I mean, iPod, Nest, this, like these are chunks of your life. So why do you have to do this? Someone's got to do it. And when I put my, like, my insight, my uh, investor hat on, you look at a problem and you look at like team problem fit. Is this a team that has the skill set to solve this problem? Is this a problem worth solving? And Gosh, like global food waste certainly is a big enough problem. And like, yeah, what's the impact? If we solve this problem, like what's the output for humanity and for the planet? And man, this is one where the team problem fit is pretty extraordinary. There just are not a lot of former Apple teams working on food waste. There's yeah, not a lot. Yeah, of, yeah, working, so, on, working on trash cans. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, the team that made the iPhone, they're working on trash cans now. You don't really hear that a lot. And one that's it's kind of humorous, but that's what these problems need. They need the best teams on the planet working on them. They do. And that's like the whole, I'm going to misquote it. First, it was finance, but it was like the best minds of our generation are working on like ad clicks, right? For, for 20 years. And yeah. Or, or crypto. Or, yeah, right. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> it's like, come on, please. We have so many other cool things that could also make you a ton of money. You don't have to do those things, you know? Yeah. How does this grow because we have CEOs and students and artists and, and product managers and, and, and everybody who engages with this looking to find their way of lateral move or graduating into something or starting a company or joining a company. Again, trying to answer this question of like, how do I give a shit? What do I do? When you start to pull all these strings on the sweater, it gets complicated. The people you have to hire who need entirely different logistical proclivities than, than your team, ex as exceptional as your history has been, has ever really had. Because again, we just talked about all those different variations on it. I'm, I'm just so curious about how you are approaching that as running the company and as you're growing the company and tackling those pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, we had to think about it really differently. Uh, my old co-founder and I, Tony, Tony and I built Nest in the image of Apple. Right. That was kind of how we built the company. And with Mill, Harry and I had to do things differently. This is not an easy startup. So building, building the team, 
yes, we have this deep Apple Nest DNA around building great products sure. and great experiences. But the other half of the company are like folks from Uber and Lyft. Think about like very disruptive, sure. distributed bu businesses that really surprise people. I mean, now you take it for granted that like you can get anywhere just by pulling out your phone or yes. get anything by pulling out your phone. But like 15 years ago, like we used to stand on the street corner with our, oh, with our arms. It's the sort of things I yell at my kids about all the time. I'm like, yeah. ah, in my day. <laughs> we used to stand on the street corner with our arms up and hope right. someone would stop and pick us and up. And they wouldn't. Right. They would not. And they wouldn't. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we built this team with really different DNA. Deep product expertise from Apple and Nest. Distributed infrastructure and logistics from Uber and Lyft. And deep policy and regulatory expertise. People who used to work at the EPA or CalRecycle the California waste organization that, that governs all of waste in California. Like we built a very different team because of the complexity of the problem and actually how many surfaces it touches. Like we're not just building a consumer company. No. We're also working with cities and towns. We're working with farmers. Like it's a much more complex business than we did it as. Did that excite you having done, I don't want to say that like Apple stuff, thermostats are, are more, the surface area is smaller, right? It just is like, at this stage in your life, as a dad of young kids, like taking on this operational complexity, was that exciting? Was it imposing? My podcast is far less operational complexity than yours does, but I still try to consider every day, like, how do I get home on time? I'm curious yeah. about that, like how you attack that stage of your life. With that. Part of the reason why I'm doing it, I could have stayed as a full-time investor, philanthropist. That was fun. I was yes. really enjoying it. But the reality is like, again, like to your first question, when we first got out, I have a particular set of skills. Yeah. You got to apply it to these kind of problems. And the fact that this is like the double black diamond of all startups, even more interesting to go do yeah. and high impact, but also really big business. We all deal with trash every single day. Sure. Cities and towns spend like $200 billion a year in the U.S. managing it. It's a big business. Like to think like the next trillion dollar company could be a waste management company blows my mind, but is very possible. Because again, it comes down to this idea. And, and you know, it's like, I have been incredibly reluctant to work with advertisers because it turns out when you build a whole business and position on like on top of a horse or on top of a soapbox, yelling at people do better, you can't just take crypto money or offset money or any of this shit, right? You're just like, damn it. But there are things we all interact with every day and there's things we all need. We all need toilet paper and we all need underwear and socks and stuff like that. And as opposed to me just saying like, no, go away to these people. There are some exceptional people and companies trying to do the right thing because they realize we all need these things and they're trying to do it. So I reach out to the who gives a craps and companies like this who are trying to do the right thing. But it's funny, you know, the young woman who, who manages our editorial stuff, she's up and she's Canadian, which is, I mean, she's better than me. She's better than me for 50 different reasons, but that's one of them. But, you know, she takes it as such a personal offense that toilet paper is mostly still virgin old forest trees from Canada. And she's like, how? Like, how have we not just straight up said, like, you can't do it anymore, you know? Yeah, right. It's not allowed. It seems like there's both that kind of low-hanging fruit for stuff we interact with every day, but these things where you go, look, if we're going to go on this journey and do the trash can, it's the trash can is such a small piece of the puzzle, right? Building this trash That's can, right. not to sneeze at the design of this product, which I can't wait to get. It's like you have unlocked a whole different thing here. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. 
I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. That's right. And, you know, part of my thinking on this is that the design is really the gateway drug. It's like, oh, that looks cool. Like, I want to learn more about it. Or I I want that for my kitchen. And it starts to get you thinking and learning more. And then you're like, oh, gosh, I didn't realize how big this problem was. Or it just, it starts to pull you in. And we saw this with Nest. Like, there were lots of thermostats before Nest. And you mentioned Ecobee. Ecobee came before Nest. Did they really? They did. Uh, they were a really nice Canadian company. At the time, let's call it 2010, yeah. they were making white plastic boxes that required a lot of installation help to get it installed. And we're, you know, we're like, oh, like, if we make a product that's beautiful and easy to use that people want, then it gets them in. It gets them hooked. It worked. Think about Tesla and like what EVs are doing to the auto industry sure. today. They look better. They drive better. I want it just because it's a better car. It's very difficult to drive an EV and then go back to a gas station or drive a gas car because it's just, again, it's a better burger, right? It just is fundamentally. And I think this is, and imagine again with everything you've done with Insight and all your philanthropy, like you've encountered the gatekeeping in the climate battles here of like personal versus systemic and one, and then this doesn't count, but this is, doesn't actually do anything. And where does organizing play a role? And what does that mean anymore? And it's, frustrating because it ignores the social element of the fact that we are social creatures and getting someone's foot in the door is getting one house in the neighborhood in the door, et cetera, et cetera. And then they tell their friends. Yeah. That's how organizing happens. Someone says like, I believe in this. I want to see change happen. And they call 10 friends and those 10 friends call 10 friends. And then before you know it, you have a movement. I think about like some of the, the great movements of the last decade, the sunrise movement. It's a great example of individual action driving collective action, which then drives systems change. And that works. And 
kind of with a consumer product hat on, we think about like the early adopter that maybe cares about climate and actually thinks about what they purchase every day. Sure. And those people then telling their friends, you know what, like there's no going back. Like once you try mill, there's no going back to stinky trash. And then they tell their friends and we saw this in S and like before you know it, you're in tens of millions of households. It's frustrating because what it does is it just like, it ignores the entire history of marketing and the way these things have always worked regardless of the product, whether it's terrible for the environment. Like look at cigarettes, you know, look at the history of advertising, like it fucking works. And that's the it thing, it's like, I mean, the thermostat was the thing. I would show people and they're like, that's cool. And I'm like, yeah, you know what's great is like, I don't wake up and it's like 84 degrees in my bedroom anymore because this thing's smart. And people are on their phones going like, order as fast as I can. No one wants the leaky trash bag anymore where you're going like, what would, what did we eat this week that is leaking through that bag? Like, could it kill us? Yeah, no one says, I, I want more chores. Yeah. Like, that's not something people say. Yeah. What's a great quote from the uh, the Vince Vaughn movie? Like, I want you to want to do the dishes. No one wants to do that. I mean, I like doing the dishes, but like, there's a reason no one wants to take out the trash. Like, I like alone time in the driveway at night. That's fair. That's for an entirely different reason. To be clear, that's a different podcast you and I can have later. But the the dealing with the trash doesn't, it doesn't have to exist and we can do a better job. And like you said, someone coming along with a very specific set of proven skills that addresses not just consumer design, but consumer behavior that can understand and empathize with the broader problem, it does seem like we need you to do this. That's right. That's right. And that's why we're doing it. What are that's why we're doing it. What are the biggest failure points in the next 12 months? Like what is Ooh. really keeping you up here? Two big things keep me up at night. One is apathy. Are people gonna give a crap? Look, it's still early days for the company. So actually like people caring does matter. We've tried really hard to showcase why this is important and why people should give a crap. So that's number one. What if people don't care? Number two is uh, what if economic headwinds and yeah. inflation and recession get in the way of important climate solutions. Like this is a mill issue, but- Oh, we're seeing in the broader with interest rates, all the climate tech investing and all that, it's a nightmare. That's right. I, I, that's one of my macro meta worries right now is like all this great progress we've made in the last couple of years with the IRA and the infrastructure sure. law and investment. Like, is that all gonna go down the toilet yeah. because we can't get our shit together with the economy? How much do you think that applies? Cause we gotta get these early adopters, right? Not just the, climate nerds like myself who like clicked reserve the second I saw the, the the post, but that influential early segment that buys the Nest and that buys the Tesla and things like that, one would think that's probably the group that can withstand a recession headwinds a little bit, but how are you going to work to try to guarantee that? Spot on. So one is you think about like the folks who can afford to help kickstart this movement. There are millions of those households that can really help get things started. Like the Tesla Roadster customer, or, or they're also the early Nest customer. Sure. The folks who are catalysts for a new industry. That's one category. The other is with partnerships. So we've started our first partnerships with cities, uh, Tacoma, Washington being the first one, where the city is going to help get mill into people's homes and help them save money. In most cities around the country, you pay per month based on the size of your trash bin. Sure. To downsize your bin, you save money. Who doesn't like to save money? So like there's a whole strategy around like, hey, downsize your bin, get mill for free. We think that should be enough to get us to our first couple of million customers to then demonstrate this works at scale so that cities are providing to everybody. So again, though, you know, and, and I think the partnerships is so smart. It's like, where can you identify these levers you can pull? Like you said, there are some severe headwinds coming. You look at a place like California where it seems so natural, 
enormous surplus nine months ago. And now they're like, Gone. we have to cut everything everywhere. It's a nightmare. And that's before they've dealt with the floods in the next six months, right? So that's off the table. And as we've all learned, like over the past three years, city and, and county and state budgets do not operate like the federal budget, which is a whole different conversation right now, right? We've been doing a lot of work with rewiring America on just like templates that homes and cities and schools and all these places can apply. Like, is there a standard set of uh, sort of carrots and sticks that you feel like you're presenting to these places that make sense? Or is Tacoma unique? What's working and how can we prepare? Exactly right. And Alexia, you're kind of taking a page from the Rewiring America book. There are dollars we're spending today. We spend exorbitant amount of money as a society managing waste. What if we could repurpose some of the dollars that we're already spending, not incremental spending. Right. We take the dollars we're, we're already spending instead of spending them on managing waste, on throwing it away effectively, right. spend it on preventing waste. And that's a new concept. And what, one of the leaders on our team, Scott Smithline, who, who actually was one of the architects of California's waste prevention bill, is helping us kind of get this out in the world. And we think this is a, it's a winning strategy. Like, let's repurpose the dollars we're already spending Instead of spending them on landfilling, let's spend them on feeding chickens effectively. Sure. And it, again, it makes sense because when we spend them on landfilling, like you said, then we're like, at some point, we'll figure out how to remove all that from the atmosphere. It's like, we haven't even figured that out yet. We're not even, pay, we can't even figure out how to pay that cost yet. I mean, like Stripe's trying, I guess, but it's like, holy shit, man. The easiest thing we do is just not send the food to the landfill. And Looking at a state like California, it's a really good example. So California is a net importer of feed. Why should California import feed when we've got all this food waste we're going to throw away? It makes sense. And it's a really nice anti-inflationary message when we say, instead of having to grow new crops, can we just repurpose the food we already have? When you see Patagonia's one wear program and things like that, it's not just some cute idea. We're literally just not making more shit. It's, it's very right. straightforward. Like, I don't need more stuff. I mean, as you know, probably as a dad, like all you do is walk around and go like, what is, what is all this stuff in my house? Like all I do is walk around, and, like throw in the donation bin. We don't need more stuff, much less like more cost. We're all trying to reduce. We're all trying to identify places where we can operate, not just more efficiently, but more intelligently. And hopefully with a bit of a moral and climate backbone to it, it, it shouldn't be that complicated. But again, we need someone who can really identify these pain points. That's right. And, and, you know, like this, this team that we've built is dedicated to the mission. It's one of the things that I love about the company and has been unique about this team is everyone is doing it because of the mission, because they want to have an impact on climate and on humanity. And we've turned down great people with awesome backgrounds, with incredible engineering skills, for example, but we're like, yeah, like I'll work on anything. Like I'll work on the next crypto thing, but like, no, no, no. Like, we want people who want to work on climate. That's that's key to the DNA here. What do costs look like as you scale? Because you're taking on a lot, but also, I guess, not just hiring and infrastructure wise, but also, and again, I know you've come at sort of your climate work so comprehensively and your organizer work so comprehensively. I'm curious if you are involved in some way and you can say or not in, for instance, the fight to make postal trucks electric because that is actually now part of your mm. business. It is part of your company's That's right. scope of mission. And so I'm curious how much you're considering pieces like that, because sort of what we do and we're increasingly trying to do is help people understand like a portfolio of their kitchen sink. Like, this is what you give a shit about. Like, 
here are the different ways you can affect it. You can't just, this is a, a brazen example, but I do believe it's telling, you know, it's not just air quality in your neighborhood, right? It's air quality in every neighborhood, which is the school buses and the post office trucks, but also the factories and everyone who lives near coal and trains and shit like that. Or abortion. You've got, yes, we need to help women right now or hungry, hunger next. We need to feed people right now. We need a better farm bill and we need, uh, you know, we need the child tax credit back and things like that. So I'm curious how you're approaching all of that. Yes. I mean, like in the mission to drive systems change, we have to get involved in all these things. And you know, like this is some of the benefit for being an entrepreneur the second time around. Like we've built a policy team at Mill and we were working even before we launched. Yeah. So we've got a small team out in D.C. that actually is working with lawmakers on the farm bill, for example. Yeah. And you know, like if you're going to reduce food waste, you got to think comprehensively. Yeah. And your point about the postal service is a really good one. The postal service is very efficient, but they've got to decarbonize too. And the drive to reduce food waste cannot result in more emissions. We have to be net good. And this is one where we've actually had to do the homework ourselves. There was not a good reference point. So we did a full scoping LCA even before we launched the company of like, manufacturing and what does that take and yeah. the plastics and the shipping and the postal service yeah. and the heating of the grounds and the energy it uses and all that stuff. And we had to do all the math. And even with all that, actually, we still save about a half a ton of emissions per household per year. And that's today. It gets better over time so, as the grid gets cleaner. And it just comes back to the fundamental point of, and I think you either said in an interview or maybe in, I know you and your co-founder wrote a, at least one post at one point and, and Forgive me if I'm misquoting it, but essentially we each buy five bags of groceries and throw away two or three of them every week. That's yep, insane. That's right. But when you do the scale of it, it just matters so much. Forget like that that is crazy. You know, think about if you left a bag yeah. in the parking lot and you just couldn't get it back. How annoyed you'd be for like a week. That's just on the other end, but it's two of them. Like, and again, do that at scale. That's right. And I think about my grandparents who grew up in the depression of 100 years ago, sure. how would they feel about the amount of waste we have in society today? You would, they would never do things this way. I think about like the previous generations where like there was no waste. You know, like whatever you didn't eat, the chickens or the pigs would eat. Yep. Like that's how things work in actually some parts of the world today. And like, there's something to say about that. Like we used to live more sustainably and this shift is doable. We could get back to some of the things that were good about how humanity used to live that were more sustainable and we can make it easier and better. And we're trying to do this in a way that's no compromise, like better for you in your kitchen, better for cities and better for the planet. And that's a tough mission, but yeah, so someone's got to do it. I think it's incredible. I love it. Again, it seems so painfully obvious, but again, when you do the math on it, you're like, good luck. Like that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a big lift, man. But like you said, and again, I've made this joke to a lot of people, especially my wife who then just, kind of walks away but in the in the 2050 water wars when my children are like what did you do when everything is on the line and be like i had a podcast they're gonna be like god damn it like come on man my wife and i've talked about this a lot like again because our kids are now 10 and 8 and 7 like you gotta actually walk the walk now because they ask me all the time they, for the podcast they say who did you call this week and they're keeping track of that stuff and they're curious and they're interested and it matters and you know your kids are going to get to the point and go what is the what is the new trash can and, and and why and that plays a bigger part of my life every day we got to do it we don't have a lot of time to make this change people have been saying that for a long time and like the the worst of the doom and gloom but 
there was that day in California where we woke up and the sky was orange Sure, all day. This is real. Like when we have flood season and fire season in, in Northern California, like we don't have a lot of time. So look, it's worth the best and brightest to work on these problems. And like, I've dedicated my life to it. I know tons of other folks are doing it and look like we, we can do this. Yeah, I'm looking at the progress we've made in renewable and electric vehicles. Like we're driving that change, but we need to drive that change everywhere. And we kind of need to do it all now. I mean, that's what's scary about it. That's what's fun. That's what's empowering about it is not just this, like we're teetering on the edge of two very different futures. Like it's not two things. It's going to be a muddled version of it all, but we could actually build something that's incredible where your trash doesn't leak everywhere, you know, and chickens. Just better. It's just, it's just better. Um, well, I'm such a huge admirer of your, your lifetime of work and have filled my homes and my friends' homes with it and can't wait to, to get this. My God. I mean, we mostly eat fresh food and then I'm just like, it just, it smells, it's everywhere. It's driving me crazy. So, um, all right, Matt, I have a couple last questions. I ask everyone that I'm going to get you out of here. Is that all right? Let's do it. Okay. When was the first time in your life, uh, when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, like running for student office when you were a kid, or it could have been when you first started thinking about climate stuff, it might've been with a couple boy scouts or whatever it might've been. The year 2000. So okay. my now, my now wife, we weren't married, obviously then, uh, we, we grew up in Florida and we were out with signs campaigning for Al Gore in Florida. And oh, if anyone remembers how close that election was, like I think about like how individual action matters. Like if we had knocked on a couple hundred more doors or we, if we convinced a couple hundred more people, like what would have happened in the world? Yeah. Yeah. Like the butterfly effect of like a couple more hours of our time and our friend's time, what would, could that have done for humanity? And look, I was like, gosh, like, we got it. We got to keep working. And my wife and I eventually did get married, obviously. And, and we, we've dedicated our lives to this fight. And look, our efforts do matter. I love that. That's awesome. I mean, again, like one of the world's most pivotal moments. Um, and right. you were a couple, in it. a couple hundred votes, a couple hundred. And like, that's something like, like two teenagers walking around Gainesville, Florida could go do. And just, we, yeah, yeah we could have kept going. Well, um, thanks for trying to amend for screwing it up for us all, Matt. I really appreciate it. Who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? My partner, Harry, is exceptional. And I think about how this company mill is going to be birthed. Having a partner who has complementary skills is so important. Like, it's important to have a co-founder. It's a lonely journey and it's sure. really hard. But yeah, Harry is kind of the yin and yang to, to me. Like, I'm very instinctual. Uh, and Harry is deeply analytical and like we play off each other really well. And this company is made better for it because we're working together. I love that. Um, not, not always the easiest journey to have instinctual and, and analytical as my, my wife can probably tell you about me, but it really does uh, matter in the long run. What is a book you've read this year that has either changed your mind on something or actually opened it to some perspective or idea that you hadn't considered before? We got a whole list up on bookshelf folks. I'd recommend The Alchemy of Air. This is a book that's about the fertilizer revolution of 100 plus years ago. So we used to get fertilizer from poop, like guano off, off of South America. Sure. And eventually that ran out and the world was faced with like hunger and how to feed humanity, like how we to get fertilizer. And some really sharp engineers and scientists created the Haber-Bosch process. 
to fix nitrogen from the air sure. to create fertilizer, which ends up being an enormously bad thing for the planet and humanity and emissions and pollution. There's a reason. There's but a book, but yeah. like, it, it, it was like a key step to like feeding humanity. And I think about like this next generation of entrepreneur and scientist and engineer who are going to create alchemy to take CO2 in the air or create nuclear fusion or prevent food waste. It's just, it's a really good read. And like, it's actually quite inspirational, but also like a good reflection on like some of the crazy things humanity has done. Like we used to get fertilizer from poop and that was the only thing we had. Yeah, because where else were you going to get it? It's also, I think, a really good lesson. And I try to apply this all the time in, in my, my home life and, and, and this work as well, which is if it's not clear, like there's just nuance to everything. Many, many things can be right. true once, whether we want them to be or not. That just is what it That's is. Right. And fertilizer fed billions of people. You can look at all the charts right. of our world and data and how things have improved. And at the same time, just like the Industrial Revolution, yes, it built the West and the Global North, but very clearly, like the receipts are in and there have been some trade-offs that we've got to deal exactly with. Exactly right. That's right. I love that. I will I will throw it on my list uh, as well here. Matt, I'm going to get you out of here. You have, you have so many things to do. Um, <laughs> I really appreciate it so much, man. Where can folks reserve mill? Where can they get in line? How can they support the mission? Go to mill.com, read more, sign up, uh, get up in our DMs on Instagram. Uh, we, we're, we're always happy to answer questions. Yeah, we'd love to hear from folks. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much uh, for your time here. Indeed. Absolute pleasure. That's it. Important Not Important is hosted by me, Quinn Emmett. It is produced by Willow Beck in Canada. It's edited by Anthony Luciani, and the music is by Tim Blaine. You can read our critically acclaimed newsletter and get notified about new podcast conversations at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, you can also find t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, all kinds of cool stuff there as well. I'm on Twitter at Quinn Emmett or at Important Not Imp. I'm also on LinkedIn, and you can find us everywhere else, basically. Uh, you can find, send us feedback or questions, guest recommendations, whatever you've got on Twitter, or probably better uh, at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for giving a shit.